from, from WDM East Lansing. You're listening, you are to, the listening undercurrent. to the Undercurrent, a weekly radio show that, that brings you audio narratives from students at Michigan State Michigan University. State University. From WDBM East Lansing, this is The Undercurrent. I am your host, Daniel Rizel. This is The Undercurrent's fourth season and fourth episode. Every week we're bringing you a different theme on the program, and this time it's about things. Personal possessions, learning to borrow, lend, and let go. We'll first hear from two people who spent some time living out of their cars. Well, fun fact, you can sleep in a Walmart parking lot. Um, be forever. After that, we get the fresh scoop on our local library of things. It was still difficult because the, these are not like any other items that we have in our collection. And to close the show, a story on hoarding and disorder from the Public Radio Exchange. Stay tuned. This is The Undercurrent. listening to Impact 89 FM, and this is The Undercurrent, our station's weekly news and storytelling program. I'm your host, Daniel Rizel. We're talking about things today on the show, and our first story is about giving them up. Well, kind of. Reporter Cole Tunningly explores the idea of privileged people who become homeless. This is Zach. I was just super aggressive. I was, I was so hostile with everybody I met. And this is Brand. I got hyper aggressively defensive of my stuff and I saw people like near my stuff and I was like, I'll kill you. Yes, they were homeless for a short span of time, about three to four weeks. Now, how do two middle-class young men suddenly become homeless? Well, not even they really know. Zach was abandoned. Everybody that I lived with was like, hey, we're done. And I was like, okay. I guess that means I'm done too. And then uh then I was living out of the car <laughs> right away. <laughs> Which was not an issue for me. I wasn't too upset. Like it took a long time to get mad about not having a house. Brandon just forgot. I didn't pay attention to my lease. I didn't it was just irresponsibility. I didn't get on top of it fast enough because I was just kinda in this weird meditative phase where I was just like, if I just believe the universal, it'll take care of me. And then it totally, totally didn't. I just, I ended up crashing at friends' couches and floors and getting drunk a lot just so I had a place to crash. And then once those ran out, I was just kind of sleeping in my car at truck stops and gas stations and stuff. So they were both in their cars, bumming around the streets of Lansing. During this time, Brandon mapped out a section of the city perfect for car sleeping. Well, it's just basically find like a truck stop or a rest area or you just crash in like like most of the east side of Lansing, like Hayford and stuff like that has overnight parking and you can just park on the street and then just sleep in your car, crack the windows. I had a what the crowbar for a little bit <laughs> that I kept in the passenger seat just in case anything bad happened. Zach happened upon a secret loophole in one famous grocery store chain's parking lot laws. Well, fun fact, you can sleep in a Walmart parking lot um, be, forever. Like, they don't... You could park your car there for months, and they're not going to do anything. You can just effing camp. 
While this way of life may sound vastly uncomfortable, Brandon admits that he was never in any real imminent danger. He fit the part so much that no one wanted to mess with him. Fate gave him a perpetually ragged appearance, and for that he considers himself very lucky. I guess lucky because I already look really poor and homeless sometimes because of how I dress, so people were just like, oh yeah, he doesn't have anything. That guy, that guy's in dire straits, and if we take anything, we're just going to get like skinny jeans and Kurt Vonnegut novels. You may have noticed the casual tone in which Brandon and Zach are speaking. They're laughing, they sound like they're having fun telling me about this. Well, this is only because their experience was less like real homelessness. It was more like a sort of poverty tourism. It was definitely an unpleasant foray into the underbelly of the city, but they knew in their hearts that they would not die in the streets. I wasn't really homeless. Like, I had a nice car. <laughs> it had heated seats. If you have a car with heated seats, you're not a homeless person. Not homeless, yeah. I agree with him. But they both still had to act desperate to perform the tasks that people have come to associate with destitution. I was collecting, like, change on the sidewalk. I definitely done that when I used to smoke cigarettes because this is, like, the second time it's happened where I was, like, actually, like, homeless, homeless. And I was, like, smoking cigarette butts I found on, like, the corner in the street and ashtrays and returning change and stuff. Sadly, Zach even admits that he had to turn to some more dangerous coping mechanisms. A lot of drugs... I totally get, like, when you meet a guy who's been homeless, and then you're like, oh, if I give him money, he's just going to go get, like, heroin. Well, yeah. <laughs> I wasn't homeless for that long, and I totally get the heroin guy. Like, the, the heroin homeless guy. Uh, like I, yeah, so there's a lot of um, drinking and drugs and hostility. So whenever I meet, like, a polite homeless guy, I'm like, yeah, man. Sorry. Whenever I meet a polite homeless guy, I'm like, all right. So they gained a newfound appreciation and understanding of an underrepresented lifestyle. Though they only spent a few weeks in this vague, purgatorial pseudo-homelessness, Zach and Brandon emerged with a little more empathy, a little more understanding, and of course, they finally got a house. Zach and I were... At the coffee shop, because that's where we were hanging out and stealing internet, basically, was that strange manner. And then we left there to go. I think we are going to Myers to, like, I don't know, like, split food or something like that. And then we were driving down the street, and we saw a for rent sign. And I was like, oh, we should totally call on this place. We called it, and then the guy was like, yeah, well, you're the first people to call. Can you meet tonight? And we, like, met him in an hour. We had to get cleaned up and not homeless looking. <laughs> like, had to go to a laundromat and stuff. But, uh, and then, yeah, he was like, you, uh, yeah, it's yours. Just talk to your other roommate and, you know, get your money together and your paperwork and it's all yours. Just got really lucky. That's it. For Impact Student Radio, I'm Cole Tunningly. And you're tuned in to MSU Student Radio. I'm your host, Daniel Rizel. This is The Undercurrent, the weekly news and storytelling program on our station. And if you missed any part of that last story or you're hoping to listen to the rest of the episode later, we've got your back. All of our episodes are available online as podcasts. You can find them at impact89fm.org and also on iTunes by searching our show's name and looking for our black and red logo. And if you have your own story to share, we'd like to hear from you. You can send us an email at news, that's N-E-W-S, at impact89fm.org. Once again, this is The Undercurrent, and I'm Daniel Rizel. 
talking about things on the show today, and reporter Nina Rao found a whole library of them. She visited the Capital Area District Library to learn more. We usually see an endless stock of books when we think of the library. And if that bores you, you're probably not alone. Or it excites you. Whichever. But what if I told you that that might change in the near future? The Capital Area District Library here in Lansing calls that the Library of Things. The Senior Associate Director of the Library, Scott Dimstrom, explains more on what this is about. Normally what people think about when they think about libraries is they think about books. Um, We have several different other things we have, along with books, we have music, we have DVDs. Um, And those things, I I think a lot of people generally associate libraries with those items also. Um, But a growing trend in public libraries throughout the U.S. is having some other things that um, people might be interested in. And those things are a collection of what we call library of things. Now, they can be very practical things, like there's um, an air quality detector or thermal radon detector, um, all the way to kind of some more fun things like a GoPro camera, a telescope, more practical things like a sewing machine. So it's things that you wouldn't necessarily associate with a library. So we took all of those things and made what's called the library of things. This isn't the first one that's existed in the U.S., started, I'm not sure what library system it started with, but um, Sacramento Public Library has a very big collection. That's the library that we looked at and kind of modeled our collection after. Um, Ann Arbor District has a collection that they've had for a while, and and a lot of those collections kind of resemble um, the library's community. So, for example, Ann Arbor District has a lot of musical instruments, things like that. Um, And We're looking into different things to add to ours, but at the beginning, we wanted some stuff that would also reflect our community. So there's a lot of stuff that we have a lot of families who use libraries. So there's a lot of stuff that you can check out and use as a family, like the telescope. Um, And we have a lot of people who are interested in arts and crafts. And so that's why we added the sewing machine um, and, and some other things like that. So... It's, it's a growing trend that started with a lot of larger library systems. And then um, we know that we our circulation is very good. We have a community that supports us. So we said, you know, why not give them something that uh, is of interest to them? And so far, it's been overwhelmingly successful. At present, all of their things are checked out. They even have a hold queue for residents now. So I asked if all the items are really popular that it's all gone. It has been for some items. So for the telescopes and uh, the sewing machines, those are very popular. There's a hold of over 40 people right now. And so we're purchasing more of those items just to to hopefully try to meet some of that demand. And the mobile hotspots are actually very popular too. That's something that we haven't released yet. We're releasing it within the next couple of weeks. And what that is, is it's a mobile Wi-Fi hotspot that you can take to your home, take to your apartment, take on vacation with you that you can have a wireless signal wherever you go and use it for streaming content, browsing the internet, whatever you'd like to do. I also asked if this has been going on for a while, and it hasn't. This library is only a month old. Very, very recently. So it's been within the last month that we've kind of, we've, um, we built a collection over the summer and then it was, um, in this last month that we actually released the collection to our patrons. Um, and it's meant to go to our libraries, but all of the items are currently checked out. So it's it's proving to be a very popular collection. And for uh, next year, for 2017, 
we've allocated some funds to actually um, build up the collection by quite a bit. But it wasn't all easy breezy in the beginning. Yeah, I mean, there's there were quite a few challenges. Uh, one of the first challenges is deciding what to buy. Um, and then after that, you know, when we get books or we get CDs or DVDs, those are pretty easy to put on the shelf and transport between our branches. We, you don't necessarily have to do anything for a book. You can put it in a box and then put it on the delivery truck and it goes to another branch. These items, we had to get cases for them. So we had to make sure that they were secure if they were transported. We had to make sure that if someone did check it out, that they understand how to use it very easily. So we had to say, okay, you know, how do we get the manual or how-to guides easily accessible for individuals? Um, and then for the financial responsibility, these are some of these items are very high-priced items. So how do we develop policies or um, things for patron accounts that we actually that they're used, but we get the items back too. So those are all things that we kind of had to cover before we rolled the service out. And it was hard. Oh, very hard, you know, but we're, we're used to it because we're used to getting items in and adding new items to our collection and kind of determining, okay, how do these check out? Who should check them out? Things like that. So we already kind of had that format in place, um, but this was it was still difficult because these are not like any other items that we have in our collection. So they planned very carefully and examined plenty of things. Um, we had limits. So um, what we did is we looked at kind of what we would like to include. Um, price is a factor in these items. I mean, we don't want to have, we want to have nice stuff, but not too expensive of stuff either. Um, and then kind of the practicality of it. So you don't want something too complex that, the loan period for these items are for some of the simpler items, uh, it's one week. And for some of the other items like a sewing machine and telescope, it's two weeks. So you don't want something that's too complicated that two weeks is not going to be enough time period for you to actually use and enjoy the item. So we took that into consideration also. And then the items that we added, those were just, they fit the best for that model. Scott is positive that things will get easier with time. You know, once we get past this comfort zone and once our patrons kind of get past their comfort zones and used to checking these items out, I think it'll be much easier. He's also hopeful that the Library of Things will encourage the community to turn to the library as a frequent resource for knowledge. This is meant to show that we reflect the interests of our community and we're able to provide something that's beyond what they would typically think a library would provide. Um, one of our big pushes at the library is um, digital literacy and helping people um, become more digitally literate. And so a lot of these tools are technology-based. And so um, some people might be very comfortable with a GoPro camera. Some people it might be a, a brand new introduction to a GoPro camera. So we're trying to serve those two audiences with that. So trying to get people to think beyond of what they currently think a public library is, but also trying to serve the needs of our current patrons if they are being introduced to something for the first time. And his goal is to one day be able to place all those things on shelves for visitors to browse through, just like their books. We hope once the, you know, once we meet the initial demand and, and we have the items on the shelf, um, we envision that's what it will be like, that you will come in and you can browse the section of the library of things. And it will be, you know, if you didn't know what was all in our collection, you could just go to the library and browse what items that we have in. For Impact Student Radio, I'm Nina Rao. 
This is The Undercurrent, and I'm your host, Daniel Rizel. We just heard from reporter Nina Rao getting the scoop on a library of things. To wrap up today's show, we've got a story from the Public Radio Exchange. Since our theme today is things, what better way to learn about them than from the perspective of a hoarder? We hear from Elizabeth Kaur, a San Francisco-based producer. Melody's life, like her house, is complicated. Her studio apartment is so full of stuff that the only place to sit is the toilet seat. She sleeps on a mat in a clearing by the front door. It's the only floor space large enough for her to stretch out. Her bathtub is piled high with bags of clothes, and she hasn't taken a shower at home for years. I recorded 35 hours of tape with Melody. In this short piece, you'll only hear about some of her complications. I can only hope to tell you a fraction of her possessions, her history, her struggles. Take this slice and multiply by a hundred, and perhaps you'll have an idea of what she faces. This is my glitter notebook. I have six pages of glitter. These are silver snowflakey sequins, silver stars, big silver stars, little... Melody has a complex mix of problems that create the perfect storm for her hoarding condition. Then on this page, we've got... She has obsessive-compulsive disorder, which is common among people who hoard. She also has attention deficit disorder, which makes it hard for her to stay focused on a task. Melody also has another complication, which began when she was two years old and her parents put her on the top bunk bed. And I was told, don't sleep close to the edge. I remember waking up as I was falling. It wasn't until 1997 that I had a brain scan that showed this left temporal lobe brain injury. And then one or two years after that, I was on the phone talking with my mom about the brain injury. And she said, oh, well, you know, you did have a concussion. I'm like, I did? I've got hanging on here, like all the cup measures, spatulas, Measuring spoon, measuring spoon, measuring spoon, measuring spoon, lots of measuring spoons. The hoarding kicked in in my teens. I would be walking along and something on the ground would catch my eye. You know, like if somebody dropped an earring or if somebody dropped a piece of jewelry, I'd pick it up and I'd put it in my pocket. It was a very gradual, gradual process, but at some point it, it crossed some other line Meaning, like, you can be fat for a while, but then one day you're obese. Whenever I visit her, Melody leads me down a foot-wide path that looks like a goat trail. Stay! We pick our way over knee-high stacks of papers. It wants to roll over. You give them the stay command and they just keep rolling over. Tall shelving units line every wall. They reach almost to the ceiling, and boxes cover every square inch. Standing in a dark, narrow aisle between shelves, I feel like I'm standing in a shadowy alley, peering up at skyscrapers. Melody has developed some innovative ways to accommodate her disabilities. She once had a large couch that she ended up using as a shelving unit, even though she knew it was a totally inefficient use of space. She just couldn't bring herself to get rid of it. What I did was I cut a swatch of the fabric from the back side of the couch and I stapled it to a three-by-five card, and then I wrote down all the information about it, seven-foot couch, reduced to three-by-five card. Within a, about 
an hour. I got the saw out. I disassembled the whole thing, and I hauled the whole thing down out onto the street. Melody used this technique on some of her other things, too. She had 75 pairs of pants that she hardly ever wore. So I took a belt loop from each pair of pants, and I stapled it to a 3 by 5 card. The process of paring down is, like, really, really hard because I don't ever want to get rid of anything. Like, right now, I'm stroking fondly this little swatch, and I'm like, Oh, I remember those pants like it was yesterday. (laughs) Okay. Um, And then, like, here's just a list of stuff. Um, This friend of mine who is no longer with us, she had this little six-sided food container. And while she was alive, I remember putting stuff in it and setting it by her bed on many occasions. And so then after she was no longer with us, I was like completely attached to it. So I just drew the shape of it on a piece of paper and wrote her name on it. And then that way I was able to get rid of it. So I've been working pretty hard at trying to set things up so that I can have some kind of external memory record of who I have been, even though it's it's really the stuff I owned, not who I've been. Besides the 3 by 5 cards, Melody invented other ways to navigate the sea of chaos in her apartment. Like a life raft, she constructed a wooden loft with built-in cubby holes and shelves to organize essentials such as her telephone, important papers, and medications. But all around that, Melody continued to accumulate things. You know, for years, my landlord would come over, and it just got to the point where, you know, he'd see me in the hallway with huge armloads of stuff, and I'm not going down the stairs, I'm going up the stairs. And, you know, the poor guy is just beside himself, and he's just saying, you can't have all that stuff in your apartment. It's a fire hazard. You gotta stop doing this. Melody said her landlord of 15 years didn't know what to do. He wound up bringing the problem to a dispute resolution organization. On one level, it's not a dispute. It's not like I disagree with my landlords about it. <laughs> no, this is not a fire hazard. No, it's not dangerous. No, I'm not blocking the fire egress exit. <laughs> you know, it's like it's not like I want to live this way. They kept making fabulous suggestions like, well, just take everything you own and throw it out. And by the time they'd suggested things like that for the billionth time, I was literally sobbing uncontrollably. I believe that in my landlord's minds, this is something that you just bite the bullet, you throw everything out, and you start over. And for the problem that I have, that's the worst thing that you can do because that's it's like binge dieting. You starve yourself until you can't stand it, and then you can never maintain your weight when you do that. Melody's binge diet happened in one day. Her landlord and all the different agencies that were helping her arranged for a large dumpster to be parked on the street outside her apartment. My landlord said, you make sure she gets this loft out of here by Monday or I'm putting a three-day eviction notice on her door. Everybody's intention was, we can't let this happen. She obviously has no idea how horrible it would be on the street and we have to save her from herself. That effort to save Melody ended up with the loft and many of her possessions in the dumpster. All of my cognitive landmarks 
were demolished. I mean, in two hours, they literally undid years and years of me working on trying to sort, which is one of my weakest areas. That day was a turning point in Melody's life, almost as if her life after that was A.D., after the dumpster. That first couple months after the dumpster, I mean, I just started sleeping on the street because it was so overwhelmingly distressing to be here. I mean, it's getting so bad here that it's almost not going to make a difference if I'm here or if I'm out in the street. It's been more than five years since the dumpster. Melody has spent most of her time since then trying to explain her problem to social workers. She keeps a three-ring binder filled with articles about hoarding and cluttering, support groups, and documentation of her efforts to clean up her apartment. If Melody won the lottery today, she said she'd hire a professional organizer, buy a digital camera, and get a full-time assistant to help her catalog the things she intended to get rid of, like a high-tech version of her 3x5 index cards. It doesn't matter what decision I make. It matters that the decision is remembered by me. If you absolutely think something should be thrown out, take a photo so that I can go, oh, my God, that was so gross. Thank you. <laughs> you know, Because when somebody comes up to me and goes, I threw out your blah, 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 my memory of it was when it was fresh and brand new. And so I'm not remembering what was thrown out. I'm remembering what it was when I got it. Melody says if someday she was able to organize her apartment, she wouldn't have a problem finding things to do with her time and energy. I keep seeing these clips on the TV from the Katrina disaster, like New Orleans and stuff. So, like, my idea of a good time would be, like, running over there and, like, helping clean stuff up. Because it's so much easier to process other people's things than it is to process your own. Not a lot grosses me out. I could be assigned a home that has to be cleared out or, like, you have to get the icky stuff out. I could go in there and do that and, like, probably stomach it. I mean, I could be actually out there helping other people go a little bit further till they can get the real help that they need. But before that, Melody says she needs to get that kind of help for herself. If I just keep showing up to my counseling appointments, if I just keep trying to explain to people what my difficulty is, like maybe I'll live long enough for someone to get it. It's a little bit like having cancer in that you're trying to live long enough for the cure to be discovered. In the meantime, Melody is still waiting. In one of our last interviews, she said she's definitely losing ground. The goat trail is getting narrower, and landslides of boxes and papers have covered it over in some places. As the winter sun sets, a single fluorescent bulb casts a ghostly, harsh light on a corner of the room where Melody sits on the floor. Keys. See? They're pretty. She's trying to stuff handfuls of antique keys back into a plastic jar. They are keys to doors that no longer exist. Three. Four. Okay, now I lost count. Like, I can't even count up to five before I lose my place. <laughs> okay. Okay. It's only funny if it's not happening to you. 
Okay. One. Two. Three. Produced by Elizabeth Kaur, a story on hoarding from the Public Radio Exchange. And that does it for this week's show. Today, we talked about things and what it means to lend, borrow, and let go. A special thanks to our general manager, Ed Glazer, our station manager, Audrey Matus, our assistant news directors, Nina Rao and Cole Tunningly, and our programming director, Michael Pomorski. You've been listening to The Undercurrent. I've been your host, Daniel Rizel. And if you missed a part of today's show, you can find the full thing online at impact89fm.org and on iTunes. You can also find us on Twitter at WDBM underscore current. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll hear from you next week. You've been listening. You've been listening to, to the, the undercurrent. Undercurrent. The undercurrent from WDBM East Lansing. <laughs>